Good evening. <clears throat> These um, things I'm going to talk to you tonight about <clears throat> are some of the most beautiful parts of our practice and um, my favorite things to talk about and ones which I really hope you become, if you aren't already, very familiar with. The factors for awakening. The factors in us which carry us to the states of awakening, to wake us up. Bojanga. Boj, B-O-J-J-H. Another spelling, I think, from for Bodh or Bodhi, Buddha, awakening. Anga, A-N-G-A, limbs. I like that image, limbs. <clears throat> Made me think of, um, you know, a six-legged creature, an insect. But not one with wings, just with limbs which carry us, move us. And these factors go together with the... Um, it's a sort of the, the counterpart to the hindrances which Temple talked about the other night, which do the opposite thing. Which It's like we're walking along on our six legs and we get stuck. We get into some hindrance or into a bog. We come up against an obstacle. One is the facilitating forwards in this journey and one is the hanging up and uh, causing us to get stuck. And so they, uh, they help each other. Well, one hinders the other. And, and this one helps the freeing. So these seven things. So first I'll describe them and uh, in terms of how we know them and how we can experience them and recognize them. <coughs> but then I want to walk, really talk about how, how we do it because that's what's much more interesting to me. Not what's happening, but how we do this. How do we get free? How do we get out of the bogs? So these seven are in order... And they're in order because one leads onwards to the next. The first one, completely essentially the first, before we can even get started anywhere, is mindfulness. Sati. And we've talked about this in all different kinds of ways during these days. So, sati, mindfulness, being present knowingly. Knowing what's happening. Um not being completely involved in it, but that sort of overview state, the not adding, the period, putting the period in, the bare knowing. It's also got that flavor of um, friendliness and uh, it's got a flavor of interest, interested curiosity. It's not just sort of sitting back and ticking off and registering. There's definitely an inquiry going on. <clears throat> curiosity. It's alive. <clears throat> That's the first one. The second one is um, investigating the dharmas, or investigation of the dharmas. It's um, curiosity. Dhamma vichaya, V-I-C-A-Y-A, dhamma vichaya, exploring what's happening. This is the element of curiosity. And it's the uh, inquiring mind that's fascinated by and interested in and wants to know about to help us become free. The faculty of wondering, of uh, asking, of being interested, and uh, vital, vital. 
it's what it's the part of the mind that doesn't just know what's happening but it it gets to understand it gets close to with interest and starts to understand starts to understand unfoldings starts to understand how something works and how something affects the next thing and so on so it's the uh exposing if you like ability of the mind it's, it's a penetrative aspect <clears throat> One of the things about having this aspect of the practice, this this, uh, investigative aspect, is you, by having it, by being able to be interested in what's going on for yourself, discover the truth of what's yours. This is what is so for you. And the thing I love about this bit is that it's no one else's truth particularly. You don't have to believe what someone else tells you. You, for yourself, because you can penetrate what's going on and understand it your own way for yourself it becomes yours it's your truth your understanding and so that gives confidence where nothing else will when you see for yourself and you go I really get something you've really got that thing and you have it and no one can say you you don't or no one can convince you that it's different it's yours it's you trust it completely and so it has that um that's why we, one of the words is realization. You realize something yourself. There's this phrase, ehipasiko, that the Buddha often uh, said. It was an invitation. Come and then see for yourself if this isn't so. And you may hear something and you may understand it in your mind many, many times. We do. We hear these talks. We read these readings. And then something goes like, oh, I get this. And that is yours. It's it's some kind of seeing into something and something making sense. And it gives you that sense of like, wow, I really get that. And it feels solid and it feels like in you. This is this capacity to to be able to see into and understand. So investigation of the dhammas. It's where we go from superficial thinking we understand or understanding a certain level of something to deeper in. It's what takes us in, inside. That's the second one. The third one is virya, V-I-R-I-Y-A. It's about, it's about application of energy, the doing part, uh, often translated as effort. I way prefer words like, um, I like a lot willingness. It's about, uh, it's about the heart, I think. It's not just the, you know, the will to do something, it's wanting to. It's the caring about, and therefore being eager. It's enthusiastic. It's, um, another word I really like is confidence. When you're confident about something, you accept it. You kind of, you, you're positive. It's like, yeah, this is good. You trust it. When you're confident about doing something, you know it's doable. You've got optimism for it. You're up for it. You uh, anticipate a good outcome. Um, there's a, a pleasure in it. There's a smile in that. It isn't just a task, and it's a formidable task of setting yourself up against and doing it just because they said, or he said, or all the books say. Or There's some, uh, there's some uh, impulsive enthusiasm in you for it 
which is important to know. It's not just plain old push, 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 do, do, do. Um, one of the uh, understandings around when you're enthusiastic about something and you do it, you do it with enjoyment. It's actually a pleasure to do. And that needs to be part of this. But it is definitely a doing and it's also really a, an applying of energy. I'll come back and talk about, and we're going to talk about how we do these things in just a minute. Um, and this is another thing that's, that's sort of unique in a way about the Buddha who never talked about grace and who never talked about saving anybody. Or he, he, He's like, you do it yourself. You, know, you, you have to be an island under yourself and take care of yourself. This is about your being mired in your difficulty and your finding your way out. And I can show you the way and I can tell you and assist you and give you guidance, but it's yours to do. It's your mind, it's your reactions, it's your understandings, and you're the only one who can actually do that. And I really like that too. I really, it makes us independent. It makes us um, highly functioning rather than dependent and weak and hoping and begging and all that. I like that part of it. It's empowering practice. That's the third one. The fourth one is piti, P-I-T-I. And this is um, the factor where there is joy. And surprise, surprise, James is going to talk about this tomorrow. (laughs) It's his favorite, so we're letting him do it tomorrow. So I'll restrain myself from too much talking about it, but it, it happens to be one of my favorites too, so I will sneak on his territory a little. Um, it's the sense that there's a sense in us of uh, this is neat, this is fascinating. There's a smile. There's a smile that comes into us. We we see something, we discover something, we whatever it is, we start connecting, and there's pleasure in it. It's like this is awesome. Some people, I mean, we sometimes it's like it's really wonderful, and other times it's just kind of this is fascinating. But fascination has a smile to it. There's, you know, there's a, an enjoyment definitely in it. And this starts to happen as we keep going. And so that enthusiasm from applying ourselves starts to kind of pay off. And it's like, it's not just that I want to do this and I think it's a good thing. It feels good. This feels right. So there's you know, that kind of good cheer that starts coming along with it. And then that's the fourth one. And the fifth one is um, serenity. Serenity or tranquility, pasadi. P a s s a d d h i. I like that word serenity. I always think of things like you know lakes at sunset with no wind and the moon just reflected crystally clear, and it's the calming, the quietening down. We all know how delicious that would be or is occasionally. It's a sweet, peaceful, oh, finally. It's the after the thrill, after the getting, whatever the thing is that we got, the actual pleasure. Described in many ways. Described as, you know, it's a hot, sunny day. This would be an Indian description. And, and either bathing or being in the cool of a tree. or At the end of your journey, you actually get there now and you can rest. So, so it's a, that relief and sweet, calm, resting place. Without it, these are some quotes, um, it's hard to tranquilize this mind. It trembles and it's unsteady. 
It's difficult to guard and hold back. It wanders at will, doesn't it so? It quivers like a fish taken from its watery home and thrown on dry ground. Anybody have that experience today? (laughs) Such is the nature of this ultra-subtle mind. I love this. A disorderly mind is a liability both to its owner and for others. A tranquilized mind keeps away all superficialities and futilities. So it's useful. Not just nice, doesn't just feel lovely, but it's actually a great skill. And without it, it's actually dangerous, I'd say. (laughs) Risky, anyway. So that's the fifth one, serenity. Um, The sixth one is samadhi. Samadhi, S-A-M-A-D-H-I. Concentrating, collecting. The word I like for this the most at least at the moment, you know, I, they're living things for me and I experience them in different ways at different times, is unified. And I'm thinking of a rope. I think of a sort of a bunch of small threads, some of them broken and some of them knotted and some of them of different lengths. And that individually, they're a bunch of individual random pieces are all rather useless. But if you twist them together and turn them into a rope, you've got a really strong thing. Like We know that ropes are made of many strands. That's their essence, what makes them so incredibly strong, many more times than their sum. If you have 10 things, but you twist them together and make one thing out of them, they're more than 10 times as strong. And so the mind, it gets, it gets everything pulling in the same direction. Everything's going together. It's a togetherness. It's a gathering in, a collecting in of our otherwise very fractured attention. Our very, we want a bit of this and we like this, but we don't like that. And we're thinking this and we're worried about that. And we like this little bit here. And it's a mishmash. Things are often against each other. Sometimes we can have opposite things going on at the same time. But as the mind becomes concentrated, it actually starts all getting in line with itself. It's harmony. It's things like, you know, the... Many voices of a choir all singing together. I sang in a choir in Europe this summer in some incredible churches. And when, when everyone actually gets it and you're all doing it as one voice, it's a profound thing. It's a re- a different than lots of individual things. And we are mostly very fractured. And we start being able to feel the unison of, of this collection and uh, the strength of it and the... Yeah, the the wholeness. I mean, that's what wholeness really is. You know, we're healed from being fractured. We become whole. And so the mind gets like that. And the last one is... um, hmm. The last one is equanimity. P-E-K-K-H-A, Upeka. Equanimity. This is um, the last in the series of awakening factors because it's, we become increasingly steady. It's, it's a state that's often used the word balanced. 
I like the word steady, like it's a really a stable state. It's a very grown up, mature kind of a mind that really sees, oh, this does this and then this happens and it, it's all understood and it's absolutely, of course, it's calm. And, but it isn't just calm, it isn't just together, it really sees a huge broad view. It's the big mind, the big view, the broad perspective. It's really wisdom. And I think of it often in terms of it's the grandmother, you know. There's the little ones and the things they're learning and they get excited about this and upset about that. And, and as they get older, as we grow up, we understand things more and we discipline things and we do this and restrain from that. And we settle down as we get older. And by the time we're the grandmother, well, you know, yes, she'll get over it. She's young still. It's okay. They rock in their chair and they're unperturbed. You know, it's a kind of like, well, it's fineness about upeka. But it's from understanding. It isn't just calm. You know, it's wise. It really gets it. Lovely image. The other image I like about equanimity is having a, having a yacht, a sailing yacht with a really big, deep, heavy keel. And that keel is really is so stabilizing. So whatever the weather, whatever the seas, wherever we're going, we've got this really big stabilizing thing down there. And so we can handle it. We can handle it. We can ride and up and down and life goes on. It isn't it doesn't grind to a halt. It doesn't like everything now is over and now it's just like shh. It's life goes on, it's very vital, but it's not, it's very capable. It's got a huge capacity to deal with huge things, you know. So that's a nice image too, because it's fluid. I like the fluid imagery. <clears throat> so, we need to get to know these things because we really, it's a very great skill in meditation to be able to see how they're doing and invite them and get to know them and get to know how are these factors, how are my awakening factors doing now? And to um, be able to help grow them and to help them. And so you need to know them. Just as it's essential to know what's hindering us and when they're happening and recognize these hindrances. Oh, this is what's happening. I'm doubting right now. So that we can extricate ourselves from the influence. This is so that we can actually become more uh, enlivened by these factors. And so... um, just go, I'll go down them in first order and then I'm going to back up. So one, mindfulness, leads to, when we're mindful, it leads to um, being interested. When you're present, you're actually able to see what's present and you're interested in it. When you're interested in it, you start actually getting enthusiastic about learning and applying yourself and growing this. And as you become enthusiastic and apply yourself, it starts to get fun. It starts to get fascinating. There starts to become joy, delight. As, as we are nourished by this delight and uh, the, uh, the inspiration of this, we begin to become satisfied. And in that satisfaction, we begin to become calm. As we become calm, the mind can settle down and unify itself and doesn't need to be running off chasing a bit of this and needing something else. It's satisfied. So it becomes unified and collected, concentrated. As we become concentrated and stable, 
The mind is behaving itself. We now have mastery over this crazy tyrant, as a guy called it this morning. Um, it, it is able to understand deeply, deeply, profoundly what's happening and how to handle it all. So it becomes very steady and balanced. If we don't have it going in that order, we don't become balanced if we aren't unified. Because we're not really all there to be able to understand. And we won't become unified if we aren't calm. The mind needs to be calm for it all to pull together. It won't pull together if it's not settled. In the settling, it's able to direct itself completely. It won't become settled. I mean, it will by long patience and by a certain degree of strong intention, but the easiest way to become settled is to become content, is to become nourished. Like when we're hungry and we need something, we're very busy trying to get it, wherever we think we might find it, and we often think many places at once. We're busy. Once we start being nourished, you know what it's like, you have a good meal. You have a good meal and you kind of lick your chops and then you settle down for a nap. It's like, it's relaxing to be nourished. When we're hungry for whatever it is, we're, we're not settled. We're not enough, not enough, not enough. Need, need. Busy, busy. We get, we get some degree of nourishing, pleasing, comforting, soothing from the pleasure. And that settles us down. Then we can become calm. So we need that joy factor. Before we get joyful and it becomes interesting, we have to, we have to do the work. We have to actually get here. We won't find joy unless we really apply ourselves and we really get into this thing, really gets going. We can't just hope that it'll be happy and just doodle around and fiddle around. And we, we have, it's, a, it's, a, it's a reward. <laughs> and we won't actually really apply ourselves if we are not interested, even if we try, even if we are willful, even if we're striving, even if we're looking for something, really wanting, really motivated because life is challenging or something, without being really interested. It's the interest that does it. When we're really interested, we just, you know, when you're interested in something, even if it's one of these things that you shouldn't be so interested in, like video games or, you know, I'm a Sudoku person. I'm just fascinated in all those numbers and I can hold my attention for quite long periods of time. It's the interest that's doing it. It's not just my push. It does it. But we won't be able to be interested in anything if, we don't, if we're not present. We'll be interested in all kinds of little fractured things, but what's going to free us won't be interesting to us unless we're here for it. So that's why we need them to go in this order. So now I want to talk to you about actually how we do them. Well, in general, just as when Temple talked about the hindrances, the most basic and profound way of growing or empowering or inviting in and experiencing these beautiful factors is by recognizing them. He used that acronym RAIN. R-A-I-N. It's the same applies here, to recognize them. To really get familiar enough to know them, that they're here and how they are. And when we're really conscious of them, what we're doing is we're acknowledging and we're able to abide abide in them and help them to be here by being seen. 
So recognizing and accepting. The Buddha used a a phrase to um, describe doing this, and his phrase is appropriate attention. Yoniso manasikara. You can ask me afterwards how to spell it if you want to know. Appropriate attention. When we really give appropriate attention, that's not complicated, that's not judging, that's not adding anything, but just fully recognizing something, these, these factors will thrive. They'll thrive and they'll grow. If you don't realize you're calm, and it's kind of quiet when you're calm, but you don't really realize it, and you're not really giving it attention, it'll be kind of low-key calm. But if you really appreciate it and really abide in it knowingly, it becomes more conscious for you becomes therefore more accessible for you, more familiar. It can really grow. And any of these, the same thing with all of these. PT doesn't have to be, you know, hugely exciting rushes and isn't this thrilling sitting here day after day. It's not like, you know, ecstasy, although it can be, it can actually, depending on what's going on with your meditation, as the mind gets very quiet. And Temple will talk about this, I think, a little later on, about some of the effects of the mind becoming very, very concentrated. There can be quite an enormous amount of delight generated. But even without huge, huge, deep concentration, even small amounts of joy, of pleasure, of fascination, are worth recognizing. It's like, oh, this does feel good. And then know that and feel that feeling of feeling good. That gives it life, gives it legs, gives it a place in your consciousness. It's growing into your brain cells as they're measuring nowadays, these scientists. And so on. The other thing about appropriate attention, systematic attention, um, is that uh, its opposite does the opposite. And this is... It doesn't just not do it, it does the opposite. So if inappropriate attention, not bothering, not recognizing, if you don't recognize that you're mindful, it, it's going to get weaker, not stronger. It won't just stay the same, it gets weakened. If you don't realize that interest is happening and you're actually getting fascinated with something and you don't know that's what's happening, it doesn't work very well, it doesn't get traction, it is random and occasional, and so on. It won't get stronger, it'll get weaker. And the same with all of them, with the same with joy, the same with concentration, same with tranquility, even equanimity. It's particularly the later factors, because the mind is getting more subtle in these later factors. They're, they're more low-key, and um, we need to actually really be aware of them, whereas we're usually aware of big dramas. That's the way the mind is wired initially. So to actually notice tranquility, or to notice just how unified the mind is, needs to actually be really noticed. If it's ignored, it's weaker. And the thing also to bear in mind is it's the opposite dance with the hindrances. If the hindrances are not noticed, they are thriving and getting stronger. And if they're noticed, they're being caught at that game. I got you. I see you. There's doubt. That's doubt trying to convince me that it's right. You can call it at its game and it'll become weakened. But if it's not noticed, it's thriving away in the dark. And so it's the, it's the opposite effect of both those. So we need appropriate attention, really recognize what's happening, and not the opposite, not ignoring, not missing, 
which is the power of this, uh, the delusion. We talk about often greed, hatred, and delusion, these three problem attitudes that we have that keep us in, you know, bound in our sams- you know, samsara, the wanting on top of things, the resisting things, and then the missing things. And this is one of the times when the missing of what's going on is, it's not just we're missing out on something, we're actually weakening, you know, we're keeping ourselves, you know, unhealthily stuck. So that's kind of a general thing about how to work with these factors. Know them, recognize them, look for them, check for them. One way I, I think of that is uh, I think of having a, you know, a set of opera glasses on the end of a stalk. I don't know, I've never had a pair of opera glasses, but I imagine you know, a tall handle and then the lunette on the end, but seven of them. It's the seven factors lunette, you know, and then like, okay, mindfulness, are you here? How about a little bit of investigation, are you here? You know, is, is my energy applying itself here? Is that, am I enjoying myself? How calm am I? You know, is this, am I getting really focused? Am I still scattery? Is this steadiness? I just ran through these seven. I do this with this, and I also do this with the hindrances. I have another another one, and I pick up the hindrances, and I go like, so who's here? Who's here? And they're often clumped together. There'll be three of them all clumped together. But I want to recognize, am I seeing what's happening through the lens of desire or aversion or agitation? Or am I seeing what's happening through the lens of interest or delight or tranquility? So it's a way of like seeing my state and getting to know which, which are here, which factors in my state are alive. It's a way of, way of perceiving. I have one for the three noble truths. The four no, fourth noble truth is, is the eightfold path, but the three I put together. You know, and I actually have, they're just two. On one is wanting and therefore and dissatisfaction. They're together. And the other one is neither of those are there. It's a, it's a state of ease. And there, one pair of glasses, and I just stick on, you know, am I, am I wanting or not? Am I struggling and wanting or am I not? Which one am I looking through? Like a lot of the, the teachings I think of in this way, they're ways to perceive how you, how you are perceiving, what lenses are going on. So I, I encourage you in some way to become familiar. So now, but I'm going to go back and go through how we actually grow because as well as noticing them we can actually grow some of these so mindfulness knowing what it is knowing it's that sense of being present and aware of what's happening when it's happening without adding anything how we grow mindfulness we can't make it more intense the way to grow mindfulness is to is to extend how long we're mindfulness. It's continuous mindfulness. That's how we grow it. So staying mindful for longer and longer periods is the way to develop mindfulness. And it's crucial. It's absolutely crucial. And it might feel like if you're not used to doing it, I've got to be mindful from the moment I open my eyes in the morning till the moment my head hits the pillow at night. Is that doable? It might seem like a a lot of work, but actually it becomes quite routine. It becomes quite natural. It's, it's the every time that we notice that we've gone and we're somewhere else, 
being back here again and being really interested in when you're back here. And uh, one of the things I, I give in instructions and I think I have with you is when you're sitting, this is when your mindfulness is not so established and you have these flights of fancy and these various thinkings going on that are threatening to pull you into themselves away from being mindful. The moment that you're mindful again, really, really take a few moments and evaluate, if you like, compare the difference from when you were thinking whatever you were thinking lost in that little story and when you were present. Really compare them. Because the story, however dramatic or juicy it may well be, and it probably is, which is why it sucked you up for a moment or two, you're missing a whole lot of everything else. Your body isn't there. Your senses aren't there. You don't know that you're here in this room. You don't know if you're hungry. You don't know if you're tired. You don't know if you're content. There's so much going on that you have no idea about. But in the moment you're present, there's all this depth of reality, color. It's subtle compared to the drama, but it's full. There's a huge amount of information that all your senses are able to perceive. Really appreciate how full, suddenly it's like you hear things, your neighbors are here, your posture is here, your knees are here, you may have your aches and pains here as well, but it's all here. And you were missing most of it and you were completely engaged in the drama of that particular movie. Really get to know that. That's one thing, get to really... But the other is keep being interested in that mindfulness as much as you can, which is why it's so effective to do it in retreat when you can. When you don't have to now talk and think of what to do next and make decisions and deal with people. and It's simple, it's quiet, it's slow. Really ongoing, moment after moment after moment, long, long moments. If you can, have longer and longer chunks of staying present. Every time you move your body, you're coming to sitting up. Stay in it, stay, stay, stay in it. That's how you grow mindfulness. Absolutely crucial. And it's just a training. And as the mind does it, it will do it more and more easily. My mind's way more continuously mindful than it ever was. And it, it loses it from time to time, but not very much. And not for very long. The last words of Sariputta, who was the most senior student of the Buddha's as he was dying, and the last words of the Buddha as he himself was dying, both said, in the words they were saying, they used the word apamada, which means they were giving advice to people that, you know, who they were leaving, and they were saying, it, it translates as incessant heedfulness. Heedfulness, another word for mindfulness, incessant that's the key. That was the last instruction they both gave. So it's the, it's the ongoing, continuously, continuously. The Buddha was always mindful. Like there was, when they gave reports of meeting him and what he did, and not just the teachings he gave, but the way he lived, everything he did was graceful. Everything he did was just the right amount. And when you're really mindful, you don't miss things and drop things and crash into things. You become really elegant. You, you know, you use just the right amount of energy to get your shoe on and to pick your, your coat down and all the little things we do. When you're not so mindful, you clomp heavily downstairs, which you don't actually need to, or you get tight about something that you don't actually need to. 
we reach just the right amount of reach to pick something off a shelf and to place it here and it's like becomes like a dance graceful when you're present you know that feeling the buddha lived like that all the time somewhere it was described how you know he never pushed too hard or missed things or dropped things he moved with this elegance when i first read that i could totally picture that and I feel that in myself at times. Once I was here and practicing on retreat, and I was, it was the summertime, and I was doing walking meditation outside here, and it was a sunny afternoon out on the courtyard here, and uh, Jack Cornfield was teaching. And, uh, and that night he was talking, and, uh, and I was sitting where you are, and, and, he, and I had seen him walk by, and there were uh, several of us, it was walking periods, so several people out there walking later on in the retreat, and, uh, and he came in and he said, I saw these stately Spanish galleons walking back and forth this afternoon. And I, I just was like, he, you know, I know he saw me and I felt like that's how I felt. It was just so stately, like this elegance of being completely mindful. And so that's a, 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 an experience of it because of the steadiness of it. It's lovely. This steadying of mindfulness is crucial because when we're able to stay present, the gaze of seeing what's happening becomes stable. I often use this phrase, the steady gaze of mindfulness. And until we have a steady gaze, we can't see what's going on. We see a bit of it and a bit of it. I often say this, like the kid with the video camera. You know, you give the little kid the video camera, you get a very sketchy report of the birthday party. You get a bit of this, a bit of light, a bit of a knee, a bit of the cat, a bit of the cake, some of the floor, a bunch of ceiling, and it's all very wobbly. And that's what our minds are like. But when they become stabilized through this continuity of being mindful, then we start being able to stay present and see. And we start seeing. That's how we get interested. It's how we can see what's happening. And then this Dharmavachaya, this exploration, we're able to see deeply into things because the mind is present and the gaze is steady. Things reveal themselves to us because of the steadiness of the gaze. And that's how we learn. That's what investigation is. It isn't investigating like accumulating a bunch of knowledge and facts and digging around and trying to figure things out. It's nothing like that. It's just staying. But when you really stay and apply yourself to something, you get to really know it. And the thing that I always imagine when I say this, because I was a midwife, is watching the new mother with her new baby. And those mothers gaze at those babies for hours and they can tell you every tiny little wrinkle of the underneath the eyelid and the whirls of the hair and the detail that is available to them. But it's not just that, that they're smart or something and they, they've written it all down. They just gaze and on they gaze. And they know so much about those little babies. That's the steady gaze of interest. And therefore learning, that kind of learning, it's not knowledge, it's like, it's penetrative understanding. But it's not available if you don't keep looking slowly, steadily, ongoingly. Then we get, I like this word the temple uses, I use the same word a lot. We become really intimate with what's happening. And that's how intimacy works. It's a steady gaze of some the, you know, of the one, the beloved. You get really intimate, not because you ask tons of questions and you do a lot of research. It's you get really close and you just stay really close for long periods 
and you become really familiar. That's what investigation means. Dhamma I like the word sinking into. So if you sink into whatever you're investigating, sink into the sense of, of pain in your shoulder and it becomes swirling and throbbing and it's got color in it and, and it starts to have shape and pulse and it gets fascinating and it shifts from being pain to being this fascinating journey of sensation. You now know a whole lot more about it because you have sunk your attention into it. If it's wanting and you're investigating wanting, you're like feeling, what's wanting feel like? Let me sink into wanting. It's a, for me, it's definitely forward. It's some kind of being in balance. It's like mm, yearning for something. You know, it's out ahead of myself. Energy is like reaching and resisting, you know, aversion. What's that like? Get intimate with what that's like. You know, it's like scrunching up or wincing. Often for me, it's a turning away. Energetically, there's a like, ugh. You know, and if I'm angry or irritated, it's really pushy. I can feel it because I stay with it long enough to get to know how it is in me. This is what investigating means. It's learning way not words, way underneath what we think. And it's slow. And it takes staying. Virya, enthusiasm, confidence. This is a whole topic, and I may talk about this a little later in the retreat, the application of energy. Um, I would say, mm, lots of things to say. I began practice with this, you know, I'm a strivey type, I like to get this right, I'm a good student, I'm a hard-working striver, type A, that's my nature. And so I did that with meditation, especially my early teacher was Goenka, and Goenka's instruction, one of his many constructions was work, work. And so I worked, you know, and I really applied myself. And um, it was effective. You know, I, I got to really stay and sit for long periods of time, and my mind got to, you know, buckle down. And But it was pretty hard work, you know, and I got, I'm sure, got pretty tight. And... and uh, it wasn't very pleasant, I have to say. Um, it was interesting, and uh, at times it began to relax, but for quite a while I felt like I was really climbing up very steep hill. You know, it was a very steep uphill climb. And I persisted. Um, but what I didn't, it took long years for me to discover by accident that if I could enjoy it, that I would relax. In fact, it was Guy himself who said once, I can't even remember, I, he, I never studied with him as a teacher in those years back, so I don't know what the situation was, but I think we were in a conversation, but he said something to me like, well, you know, the secret of concentration is relaxing. And I said, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the secret of it was just to keep, you know, like nailing that mind down and hold it there, you know, like really willful. So, um, what we need with energy, enthusiasm, wanting to do it, it has to be a degree of pleasure in it. We have to have a degree that we can do it, some confidence. But what it actually is, is it goes with this staying present, ongoing continuity of mindfulness, and it means keep 
that up. It's persistence. And it has to be gentle, because if you do it too hard, you can't persist, you can't, you quit, it's exhausting. You need to have enough energy to keep being present with and keep being interested with and keep on going, but not too much. And that is a skill, and you learn it by doing too much usually, and then not enough, and then you're all spaced out, and then you do too much again, and then you're exhausted, and God, this is unbelievable, we've got 20-something days left, oh my God, you know, like that. We kind of give it a big push, and then we take a break, and then we give it a big push, and that's how we begin. But actually the skill of, of energy, of appropriate energy, it's a discipline. It is a definitely an application of energy. It's not a drift. It's not a cruise. It's not a fun trip. It's doing it, being really here. But it's a gentle, ongoing, very steady, sustainable. You have to be sustainable with your energy, application of your energy. And that, it gets to be delicate. And the delicate, like how hard to push the pedal to the metal, you know, how hard to go for it. And uh, when I was a child, this reminds me, when I was a child in England, there was a, a race car driver called Sterling Moss, giving away my age. I was born at the end of the war. Um, and he had a sister called Pat. And he was the race car driver and very famous, but his sister used to compete driving. But how she competed and what she won tons of was, um, I don't know what they called it, but she would race. I remember her racing, hearing about her racing from John O'Groats to Land's End, which is the length and breadth of England, you know, from North Scotland to South Cornwall. She would be the first to win, but the first with the light, with the least um, use of gas. Like it was how efficiently could she do it? She could do it so efficiently that she used a barefoot. She never used, she just had socks. She didn't put shoes on. And her, all the time, it was how much she needed to press the pedal, but not too much. And she won that race all the time. And I think that was just as great a a winning as her brother, who was the fastest, you know. It's an efficiency, and that's what we need. We need to learn the efficiency of our energy that sustains us. And when we're practicing really well, using that really wisely, we don't get tired. We're able to just keep going gently, gently, all the time, easily, all the time, all our lives. So that's an an elegance. Beware of warriorship. Beware of goal-orienting and trying and striving. There are dangers in that. You get tired, you'll get frustrated, you'll judge yourself, doubts will start to arise, you'll get into trouble. Aversion may well happen. You know, if you just do it gently, gently, keep going. It's the tortoise and the hare thing. You know, that's what's sustainable. If you're too light, you get too cruisy, this is fun and it gets kind of light and you don't actually notice things. You don't, there isn't a deepening of understanding. You're just skimming along the surface. Too light, too easy. It isn't an easy trip here, but it doesn't have to be hard either. I've written down here, stop bargaining and just do it. And when you're sitting quietly, just trying to be present, trying to be present, your mind is always coming up with, well, I think I'll have a cup of tea at the end of this sit, and maybe if they ring the bell sooner, I can fit in a sooner, da 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 There's always maybe something else, maybe something else. Just drop all the bargaining. Just stay here. Just stay here. Just relax and stay. Be a little bit curious, a little bit kind, and stay. 
So it's, it's a definite discipline. And it's, but it's an essential discipline. You have to learn that one. And you have to really do that one. And the thing that's so great about these long retreats is you can learn these skills. You can see when it's too much, you can see when it's too little, and you can gauge your own energy. And it's going to change during the course of the day what's going on for you. But that learning to really be sustained, and you can really help by going slower. And we have time on a long retreat. Go slowly and see, are you able to just gently stay present all the way down the hill, all the way into the foyer at the, at the kitchen, all the way into the dining room, over to where you're sitting, and here comes the sun. It's a really elegant, gentle sustaining of your awareness. That's good effort. These are things you can do and must learn. And these are the, the mindfulness, investigation, uh, energy, are what you can do. The rest of them, we can't actually do. They are fruits of practice. We can know them when they're arising and we can give them legs by acknowledging them, experiencing them, sustaining them, letting ourselves grow the cells in our brains of, of joy or calm. But you can't actually make joy happen and you can't make calm happen and you can't make a concentration happen. You can apply to be interested in to stay, but the actual getting concentrated or getting calm or even becoming enraptured with the exercise isn't yours to do. But just notice when it's arising. And there are lots of supporting players that can help. So uh, to actually facilitate joy to arise, James is going to talk about. Um, but to look for the pleasant. Just to know that there can be things that are pleasant. Take moments of what nourishes me, what inspires me. Enjoy a moment of the sun. I mean, we all are. There are people now, you know, outside at any time gazing up at the stars or when the moon is new or the turkeys. We can stand enraptured at turkeys <laughs> that we normally would never bother with. They're amazing things. I always think they're made specially for meditators because they're so extraordinary. Even they're odd little, they're also odd. It's fascinating. But then there's delight. When you do it, don't just focus on the turkey. Notice that it's so extraordinarily fascinating and there's delight in you looking at these weird things. And all the light shimmering in their feathers. And isn't it neat? Notice the, the, notice the enjoyment that is there, that's arising. You couldn't make it happen, but you can notice it when it's happening. So tune into that. And there's more and more available as the mind gets calmer and clearer. It gets lighter inside and then we see more light. That's one of the things I've really noticed myself in practice. I'm very visual, as you realize. And so um, I'm always looking and seeing things in imagery inside if my eyes are closed, but seeing lots of things. And I see a lot of light. And last year, I had a beautiful time practicing. I like to practice in England at this place called Gaia House. And... Um, I, I had, took a seven weeks retreat and I did mostly concentration, a lot of concentration. And a lot of the factors of, of uh, joy were arising because of this practice I was doing. And, uh, and there was so much light inside me that I was seeing light everywhere. And one particular moment I'll share, because it was just 
a fabulous thing that you'd never normally see. There are these uh, little narrow roadways, lanes really, in Devonshire in England where Gaia houses with big high hedges, fairly narrow, and, uh, and it's hilly. And then every so often you get a break in the hedge and you can see all these green fields full of cows and things. Anyway, so I was walking along and it was in the afternoon and it was about four o'clock or so in the afternoon and it was in November. And so this sunset, you know, it's not, it's a little further north than here, so the sun sets a little earlier in the afternoon. So it was, the sun is low in the sky. I walk up this little narrow road, little hill, and I turn the corner, and in front of me was a straight stretch, biggish trees and hedge here, a smaller hedge on this side, probably two feet or so above my head, maybe, maybe a foot or so above my head, with, it had been cut and had grown a few things. And the sun is over there. I'm kind of now heading into the sun. And there's a wind rising. And this is a hill. I've just walked up this hill and turned along the top. So here we have a hill. And there was quite a wind coming up the hill. Not a heavy wind, but a very steady breeze blowing up from this side. And as I turned and headed into the sun, there must have been a thousand little spiders in every foot of hedge because there were streaming, maybe three feet tall, strands of gossamer a thousand per foot of this hundred yards of hedge. And I turn the corner and I'm just seeing like this arch of light that I'm walking into and under. It was like, it was absolutely the most incredible tiny, and they were waving gradually in the wind. And there was another yogi walking the other way and I was dying to say, stop and turn around and look. Now, it probably wouldn't even have been seen. It was probably as much my eyes as the actual sun glinting on all these literally thousands and thousands of gossamers. But there's so much joy over the simple things like that. The joy was probably already there, but it gets seen in these ways. And the thing that I'm saying about this, apart from that it's lovely, is that the mind gets very quiet when it has these moments of joy. And it took me years. I really believed that if I would really tried and applied myself and got really calm and concentrated, my mind would get stable and still. And it did. But when I discovered joy, it did it way easier, way quicker, way naturally, because the inside of me was already satiated, you know, wasn't hungry, didn't depend on effort, so depended on this light. So it's really a worthwhile endeavor to enjoy what's enjoyable from time to time in practice. So I would say when you have these moments of delight or even fascination and there's some pleasure in it and you're enjoying the turkeys, whatever it is that's happening, sometimes deep inside yourself in the room here sitting, is rest in that state. Recognize that state, that's the recognize it, but then rest in that. Like give yourself into that. Let yourself be nourished by it. Sustain it. That's how it grows. And I would say the same thing for as the mind becomes really concentrated. And the last one's an an equanimity, concentration and equanimity. They're so not doing. The mind that is concentrated is just resting. It's deeply, deeply nourishing. To actually feel finally you can rest. Because most of that sense of me is busy fixing things and getting things and resisting things and organizing everything. And it's so busy. 
And when it's finally getting concentrated, it gets quiet in there. And those thoughts aren't making you do anything. It's such a relief. Then you can really, really, it's rest in it. Sink in that quiet. Be nourished. I've had feelings that literally every cell in my body is going like, yum, 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 in the quiet. It's like I almost can see them drinking up the silence. It's really what we all want. We want peace. We want quiet. We want ease. We don't want all of the racket that's going on all the time. It's just so normal for us that we don't even know we're doing it. But those moments when it gets quiet in there and things settle down. So I just would say the only doing we can do is really know them and really rest deeply in these states. Equanimity, stability. Enjoy being grandma for a while. And then the thing that I must then add is, as we do, I think probably the number one to bring this all of this down to one thing, it's, it's, uh, it's S. I, I often uh, teach mindfulness in terms of another acronym that I haven't told you, uh, SLOW, S-L-O-W. S standing for stay, or sink, or steady the gaze. L for loving because I really believe we need a lot of kindness and heart for all of this, because it can get grim, or it can get boring, or it can get downright embarrassing, you know, we have to look at our stuff, and so lovingly, some, some warmth and kindness there. O is that open to what is happening, and I already talked about accepting, that's really what I mean by that. And then W is wonder, and that's the curiosity that's with the, the second of these factors, to be interested in what's happening, to care about it. I like the word wonder because it's innocent. It isn't clever. It's not like kids are trying to get smart. They just can't help but say why and wow when they're young enough. There's an innocence, and that's what I like the word W, but it's that what's going on? Sort of, without trying to find answers, but just being in- inquisitive, slow. But the S, stay, settle down, sink into this moment. Whatever's here, don't go looking for it, don't try and dig it out, explain it away, just sink in here, stay here. It's like you're training the puppy, come on, no, no, no. stay, stay, stay. That's the the biggest skill, I think, the most important skill of all of this. Because when we can, what happens is we don't just see lots and we understand lots. We do. The reason why it's so important is we see how this leads to this, leads to this, leads to this. We start understanding causes, conditions, and effects. And when we see for ourselves, clearly, in ourselves, it working, that this triggers this, leads to this, which then has this effect, we're then, only then, able to decide if that's what we want to be doing. If we really can see the arising of a thought or a kind of, kind of thoughts and what that feels like and what makes it grow and what makes it diminish and how when it leaves, the residue it leaves behind, we will be able to choose 
our systems will be able to choose wisely. That's not such a good idea. Guy was talking about it this morning. But how we do what he said this morning is by staying present. And then we'll see the unfolding of things. And we'll really experience the residue when you were judging yourself. What that feels like after the judging doesn't feel good. It feels tight. It feels heavy. You're not okay. Your mouth is going, ugh. And if you actually are able to say, it's okay, you're doing the best you can, the effect of that, you can feel that. Or if you're worrying about something and you're mindful enough to realize, oh, I'm worrying, and oh, and it feels like this, and this happens and my brow furrows and my energy goes up and I expect my blood pressure is rising and, and I can just see, oh, that's so unpleasant and I can stay present and it subsides and sometimes it goes poof, like he said this morning and sometimes it just fades down in its time. Sometimes it has a bit of momentum, takes a while to go. But stay present, stay, and then it will be gone. And sooner or later, that won't be happening. And stay then. And now what's that like? And doesn't that feel different from being worrying? And now we see the difference and we experience freedom from worry. If we don't stay present, you won't have that experience. You'll be worried, it'll be over, you'll be on to the next thing, on to the next thing. And you won't appreciate the presence and then the absence of these changing states. And it's the presence and the absence that shows us what they're like. And it's experiencing what they're like that guides our system into choosing. I want more of this, I want less of this. This is not helpful. And the ultimate question really is if this leads to a sense of freedom and ease or if it leads into more of confusion and pressure and dukkha. And you don't have to think about it, you have to just experience it. But you can only experience it with wisdom by staying in it and see the dance of of how it is and what it does and where it goes causes and effects, and everything have causes and effects. Everything causes everything, something else, something else. You start seeing the unfolding of patterns in this human. And if it's in this human, you know it's in all all humans. And that's why we train this way. Because then the system is going to choose ease, it's going to choose the wholesome. We don't have to teach it to do that part. We don't want to be all caught up and all worried and all confused and exhausted. Absolutely don't need to be taught that. This is, this is the, the beautiful strength of this practice. We then, inside ourselves, grow to understand and then make wise choices. Ourselves, we become self-reliant. The practice teaches you your strength. It shows you your confusion. It heals you from it. We grow in these these beautiful beings, all inside ourselves, all by staying present. It's unbelievably powerful and brilliant and completely effective. But it just takes this training and this practicing. So, cheering you on. To live in the great way is neither easy nor difficult. But those with limited views are fearful and irresolute. 
The faster they hurry, the slower they go. And clinging is never limited. Even to be attached to the idea of enlightenment is to go astray. Just let things be in their own way, and there will be neither coming nor going. When thought is in bondage, the truth is hidden, for everything is murky and unclear, and the burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness. To all of us. And this is what the Buddha is leading to. And do you want to be annoyed and weary or do you want to be free and easy? So, may these words encourage you to gently, persistently be here. Learn and free yourselves. Thank you. I want to sit quietly for a moment or two. Thank you for your attention. I hope it's helpful. So we have, uh, as usual, just under half an hour for some walking and then stargazing and then we'll do some